0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. China responded to last week's U.S. tariffs with tariffs of its own today. Markets around the world have dropped sharply. The U.S. is getting ready with even more tariffs. The U.S. trade representative says it started a process to raise tariffs on essentially all remaining imports from China. And China's foreign ministry spokesperson says China will never yield to external pressure. Let's talk about how China sees the latest developments with Wen Huang. He's the author of The Little Red Guard and A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Thanks
1: a lot for joining us again, Wen. Good to see you. Thank you, Jerome. We've been following this whole thing during the whole weekend Uh, uh, I've been producing this Chinese show, trying to target the Chinese. And the would time we produ- the show uh, is uh, posted online, 150,000 uh, views right within a few hours. So people are wow. really, really concerned, especially Chinese speaking. People.
0: Well, it sounds like the Chinese official media is trying to um, convince uh, Chinese that um, it's, everything is okay. We're never going to yield to the U- U.S. maximum pressure. Um, we're, uh, we're never going to bl- uh, go against our principles, things that sound
1: really stout. Uh, is that working? Uh, I think like for the, the Chinese media's reaction was very unusual. Like uh, last, early, uh, last week when um, – President Trump tweeted that uh, the the threat and Chinese media, they blocked any coverage. And then the Chinese market crashed uh, dramatically because a lot of people saw it on Twitter or the social media platforms. And the Chinese official media remained silent because they were waiting for the Chinese government to respond. And uh, even the Chinese foreign spokesperson tried to uh, sidestep the question. But then once the talk was over on Friday Between the China's trade representative and uh, the U.S. their counterparts, and then no deal uh, on Friday, and then the Chinese media, official media, started to become really active because uh, to them, they, uh, including Chinese leadership, they've been put in a dilemma. On the one hand, they couldn't back down, just like here; uh, they can't appear to be too soft. Or if they accept the Chinese treaty, they see that as an unequal treaty because Chinese always have the chip on their shoulder. Historically, in the 19th and 18th century, China accepted several unequal treaties with the uh, the, the West, like the UK, France, and uh, the United States, Russia, and uh, because this unequal treaty, and then uh, they triggered mass uh, protest. And also the Chinese leadership, Xi Jinping, uh, the president, he wants to appear tough. But on the other hand, the trade war is going to have a major impact on China as well because experts say that if the trade war continues, it's going to chip off – shave off 1.5 percent from the GDP. That means like uh, millions of jobs for the Chinese. And, you know, unemployment in China is always a political problem because it uh, jeopardized the, the security situation. They, the Chinese leadership is very worried about this. But how they handle this right now, I think both sides are trying to figure out.
0: Now, the Chinese uh, leadership has said things about how – Um, They don't want to put into law certain aspects of of the trade deal. They want to do it by regulation. And this seems to be a sticking point that the Trump administration cannot uh, get over – is there something about that about putting things into a uh, something and passing it through the Chinese Congress, which doesn't meet very often uh, the Chinese legislature uh, is there something about that that is important
1: so to the Chinese media, their trade representative for the first time talked to the Chinese media and they issued their own version of the event. Their things is basically a couple of things: first one, they felt that uh, the u s want China to buy different soybeans or airplanes, whatever, they felt like the, the, the target was uh, unrealistic. I guess if Trump last time somebody made a mistake saying, we're going to buy 5 million tons of soybeans from the from China. Uh, China is going to buy 5 million p- tons of uh, soybeans from the US every day, even though it was a mistake. But it was still, I guess they demand a lot. And then China feel like uh, it's not uh, realistic. I think the most important thing is the technology transfer or the intellectual property rights. They want China china to enforce the the uh, the law against such uh, violations and also uh, the us want china to change the law and then china feels like this is a sovereignty issue it's you cannot uh, force me a foreign country ask me to to enforce it in our own country they see that as a main thing but i think the most important thing is that uh, some of the trade practice when they change it uh, touches the Chinese political system or the system, they felt like it is going to be a threat to the Chinese Communist Party's rule. That's the main reason. That's the bottom line. I don't think they want to cross that.
0: How is it a threat to the Chinese Communist Party's rule?
1: Because if you, when you open the uh, the market to the foreign um, banks and then some intellectual rights affects the, the state-run enterprises and it's going to cause chaos, it's uh, if China, the government loses control of it... And and then they are going to uh lose control of the whole country, so they there are certain things they're not going to to budge so that's the the reason and the u s wants fundamental changes the structural changes i don't think China is going to Comply. And they, right now, the Chinese, I feel like they are, they apply the tactics that Chairman Mao used to. Every Chinese knows that Chairman Mao's tactics called how to fight a protracted war. Because China, in the editorial today, the Chinese media said, the Chinese economy is not a little pound. We are as vast as the sea. We can uh, take any turbulence. So Xi Jinping is going to be in power for a long time, and then they said, we can wait and then see both sides going to hurt, but uh, they're going to see who is going to blink first.
0: I'm talking with Wen Huang about some of the developments between the U.S. and China in their trade war, where he's the author of The Little Red Guard and A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Uh, Some of the things I've been reading are about the... Uh, full board change in the U.S.-China relationship, and maybe a permanently antagonistic state that they will now live in. And China's economic rise has been fostered on good relations with the U.S. on you know at least you know competitive partnerships with the U.S. and things. Um, do you think that these two economic giants can live in a more adversarial, Cold War type relationship? I was reading Mike Pompeo. Um, compared China's ambitions to Russia and Iran in a speech in London. He said they're a new kind of challenge, an authoritarian regime that's integrated economically into the West in ways the Soviet Union never was. So he's comparing
1: China to the Soviet Union, Iran, Russia, everybody all all at once. It looks like the Trump administration is trying to go in that way, trying to make – block China in every way. Pompeo has been traveling to Latin America to Central Asia, uh, Central Europe and then try to counter and go to Europe and try to counter Huawei's influence that uh, persuaded our allies now to use 5G uh, developed by Huawei and then to go to Latin America and go to Asian countries, try to block the One Belt, One Road uh, initiative and now the trade war is so, and also within the U.S. and then all the Uh, CIA directors, FBI directors, and uh, Pompeo talking about the spy espionage uh, deluge that we're facing here. So it looks like the two wars, they're trying to, thinking that uh, they're going to contain China, we can probably uh, change the regime. But... uh, in the short run, it's going to be very tense, but I still believe that in the long run, I don't think that uh, this is going to last. Sooner or later, the two sides is going to resolve it. Because right now, if you talk about the trade war, there isn't China. There isn't much that China could do right to retaliate, apart from the sixty billion dollar in tariffs. And then some people say they would make uh, China's uh,
0: out of <laughs> out of stuff to tariffs. Right. US. We, we we do not ship them enough stuff to tariff.
1: Them. Right. Then now they said they could dump the U.S. treasuries because they, they own 1.2 trillion. U.S. treasuries. But if they dump the treasury, it's going to affect the whole bond market and their own position is going to be affected because they still have a lot of US, uh, uh, money in the U.S. treasuries. And also, if they dump it, where, where do they put the money? And uh, so that's one thing. Uh, other people say that uh, China is going to uh, uh, put regulations making it hard for U.S. companies to, to operate there. But the whole thing is when they disrupt the global supply chain because a lot of The major companies. Their, their parts are made in China or assembled in China, move over here. But the thing is, once China is going too far and then they could lose the market, they could lose the reputation. So it is there isn't much they could do and also devaluate the, the, the currency. Their currency. And yesterday, like when my sister came two weeks ago to visit me, the, 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 the exchange rate was 6.5. Now last night it's almost 6.9. So devalue it greatly. That's another way to counter the U.S. tariffs. But on the other hand, when the devaluation of the yuan, the currency, will cause uh, a lot of people to withdraw money from China. And uh, the and also ordinary people is going to suffer tremendously because it's not worth anything. So the Chinese government is facing a dilemma. And also Xi's uh, power right now is being challenged. There are some liberal economists, uh, ordinary, a lot, ordinary people, surprisingly, they kind of support the trade war because they feel they feel like China needs the changes. And also they need to remove some of the tariffs on the expense of Gucci bags or the coach bags. They, all the Chinese women, that come here and buy luxury goods and cars. So they are facing the challenges. We'll see that she is under pressure. I think both sides are facing pressure to reach a deal. All right.
0: So wh- how do they do that without losing face? They're, they both want to look like they won, uh, and they're both stubborn. And they, you know, the Trump administration has a lot on the line. China's a lot on the line. Where's the wiggle room here?
1: I'm not sure. I think right now, like, uh, for example, Trump says that the Chinese is the one who broke the promise. And China said the U.S. is being unreasonable. And we'll see two sides. But the, the whole thing is China. Right now, their strategy is to bring the trade representative here. As long as the talk, they can keep going. And because they know that once they break off, like the Trump and Kim meeting, once you break off, it's harder to bring everybody together again. As long as the talk continues, I think in the next couple of weeks with the U.S. stock market, the Chinese stock market market crashing, and maybe they will find some ways that uh, can give each other, you know, some wiggle room. They can both claim victory. Uh, Even
0: Donald Trump on Twitter was speculating that uh, China was just waiting out this Uh, stringing out these negotiations, hoping to get to 2020 and a new and a democratic uh, administration. Does that sound like something China would do if they're preparing for a long war with the U.S.? Uh, Is that their strategy?
1: I think that uh, somebody say that I have read this report saying that uh, this time they try to wait out, for example, wait out the, 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 the options because they feel like, for example, soybeans and the, the, some the the, the the stuff will uh, affect uh, U.S. farmers. And especially I met some of the U.S. farmers downstate. They are suffering tremendously from yeah. the trade war. The soybean, especially this year, because of the rainy season, they couldn't plan on time. They're going to suffer. So they hope to target this demographics to to, uh, to wait out. But on the other hand, I think it's a big mistake. Look at all the Democratic candidates right now. Each one is claiming tougher measures against China. So I doubt that uh, they probably see through that. But I just don't think they can wait for a couple of years. And this, this year for China is a very sensitive year. All the June 4th, the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square is coming up. And China already has several this public security meetings, try to maintain stability. But 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 uh, I'm not sure what kind of uh, face-saving measures both sides will come up with. But we will see something in the very near future. Uh,
0: Are you surprised that this doesn't bleed into other – I mean maybe it does bleed into every aspect of the U.S.-China relationship. But the U.S. never criticizes um, the Uyghur crackdown or anything. It doesn't come down hard on on kind of things that it seems like it would be – uh, you would do if you were really trying to pressure them on all scores.
1: I think that right now the US has, uh, you probably haven't read it, uh, Pompeo has, uh, Made several statements about the, uh, China's crackdown on the Uyghur population, as well as uh, some of the human rights uh, issues. But right now, because the trade war overwhelms everything, but the harder part for the for U.S. to impose any of the sanctions or started this antagonistic approach to China is because it's hard to build an uh, alliance. Because in the during the Cold War with the Soviet Union it was purely economic, uh, uh, ideological, and it was, uh, there was no there there weren't a lot of connections. But nowadays, our allies, uh, Britain, France, and Germany, their economy is so interconnected with China. So, Besides, the Trump uh, administration's policy is so uh, unpredictable. So they couldn't, for example, the U.S. tried to stop Huawei from uh, reaching out to Europe. They couldn't do that because uh, Britain and Germany, they're very ambivalent about this. And even the Wen Silk, uh, One Belt, One Road project, the U.S. started this whole offensive against China's uh, approach. But they have not been successful because a lot of Italy, Greece and all the other countries, they joined the uh the, the China initiative because it's getting more and more complicated and then the the economic connections they're so interlinked it is hard to build an alliance against China so I just assume that uh uh Whatever the ideological part of it is not going to work that 's why it's uh, sooner or later that both sides have to resolve this.
0: I noticed that uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. Xi both are going to attend the group twenty group of twenty meetings at uh, in Japan in a, about a month. Um,
1: is that an opportunity, or is that just um, what? I think both sides are hoping that by then they could uh, reach some deal uh, behind the scene or something because Trump said during one of his tweets specifically said she present she is still my friend, and uh, that probably paves the way, saying that we still have that personal connection, and then two of us will work out something. But right now he both sides are acting tough. Well, we'll
0: keep our eye on what's happening with the U.S. and China talks. And thanks for joining us, Wen Huang. He's the author of The Little Red Guard and A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. And we talk with him frequently about China on Worldview. Great to see you again. I could see you too, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about conflict-related sexual violence. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. The Prosecutors is a feature length documentary that tells the story of three dedicated lawyers who fight to ensure that sexual violence and conflict is not met with impunity. Filmed over five years on three continents, it takes viewers from the Democratic Republic of the Congo to Bosnia and to uh, Colombia as well on journeys toward justice. The Chicago premiere is tonight at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, and two of the participants in the post-film discussion are with me now. Kim Twee Sillinger is the director of the Sexual Violence Program and the Human Rights Center at at the Berkeley School of Law. Thanks for joining me. Hi. And also with me is Patricia Visor Sellers, special advisor for Gender Office of the Prosecutor with the International Criminal Court. Thanks a lot for joining me, Patricia. Hi. I wanted to start, first of all, and and say something about the history of sexual violence. And, and people have always raped and pillaged, it seems, when there is conflict. Um, but I think there's the perception that in the 20th century, something more formal happened, something changed, there was a new strategy. Um, how do you – react to that, Patricia? Is that an idea that is
2: real? Well, I think you're right. I think people think that something different did happen. But in essence, I think that they think it's different because finally they're aware of the extent of sexual violence during armed conflict or wartime. But in reality, uh, as you can see, whether you look at pictures of the rape of the Sabine women... Or if you really understand, going back to ancient history, sexual violence against males and females, uh, children and the elderly, uh, was always a part of armed conflict. Uh, I could point you to treaties from the 1700s, 1600s, basically asking, you know, uh, the enemy to to save our sacred places, not to rape our scholars or women or children or our our agricultural uh, workers, so... Uh, unfortunately, there has been rape for I think the entire history almost of armed conflict.
0: And our awareness of it is about um, is why is, why do we you know feel this awareness now or have this kind of urge to, to to criminalize this and and not have impunity for this as a war crime at this time, uh, Kim.
3: I mean, I think as Patty was mentioning, we, our awareness has increased in the past century, partly in the last few decades in particular, with the push, sort of with feminist movements and civil society to start raising the issue and make sure that crimes that happen, um, the focus initially was very much on women and children. But of course, as Patty mentioned, we, we know it also happens to men and boys. But to push to put these crimes on the table along with other crimes that were considered a... Quite serious, like murder and pillage, so we've had a big push from civil society and and feminists really to say the things that have happened traditionally to women should not be invisible. Um, the The rapes that we have been too afraid to speak about um, or have been such a source of shame or stigma should actually be accounted for. so we've seen that a lot more in the last several decades. So I think that's part of the awareness, um, and also we're just more connected now. We have much more access to information about what's happening around the world, um, including crimes and efforts to promote accountability. How
0: long has the legal fight against this been going on? There, you, we we talk about it as a you you're, you were mentioning there were ancient um, pleas not to not to do this, um, and I think people think about Nuremberg and. Um, the ICC in, in our time and think, well, we're, we're making some kind of advancement. Uh, how, what's the, the real long-distance terrain on this, uh, Patricia?
2: I think the long-distance terrain is is obvious if, if we know what we're looking at. We could go back to, as a matter of fact, uh, what's called the Lever Code for the American Civil War, which very blatantly uh, said it's one of the few uh, instruments, international instruments, that says that you cannot rape Uh, the inhabitants of occupied territory. And then the Hague Conventions, all of the Geneva Conventions, uh, talk about indecent assault, which is Victorian code word for do not rape, please. And now the United Nations has opened up its archives from World War II. And -hmm. we find that there were really um, tens, if not hundreds, of trials of rape that happened during World War II that were prosecuted. They just haven't filtered down into... Uh, common knowledge. Uh, If I could add one other thing is that I think there was too much of a disregard of whether it be the general or whether it be the top politician saying, well, what do you expect? Rape happens in war. And so the shrug of the shoulder was the enforcement mechanism. And I think that we're no longer in that place and that now we look at Conduct, sexual violent conduct, is something that is meant to be prosecuted, and no politician will stand up today and say, "Well, so what? My men raped. What, what do you expect?" Uh, that is no longer um, part of the political agenda.
0: Uh, what was going on in World War II? Who was doing the prosecuting of uh, sexual violence? Well, if
2: one would look at the Nuremberg judgment, and there is this urban legend that there was no sexual violence in Nuremberg. If you look at the transcript. Uh, You will understand, and if you look at the legal basis of Nuremberg, that sexual violence against males and females was part of uh, what was adjudicated. But my um, favorite nighttime reading, if you really want to talk about sexual violence in war, is the Tokyo Judgment. Chapter 8 of the Tokyo Judgment has so much rape and sexual torture that you will just— you know, close it and get another uh, glass of water before resuming. So it's a myth that these were not crimes during World War II, that they were not prosecuted during World War II. But then some, um, I wouldn't want to say worldwide amnesia took over, and it's as if we're recriminalizing what was already criminal. I think we're focusing more on enforcement and making it known and understood that this enforcement should be our, our normal approach to sexual violence during armed conflict.
0: How does uh, the prosecution of sexual violence in uh, more recent uh, conflicts, and the, the prosecutors takes place with uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Bosnia, Colombia, um, is how is it, it how is it different now, or what what kind of role does it play with in the framework of all prosecutions for war crimes? Because uh, it seems like a lot of prosecutions for war crimes in the International Criminal Court gets criticized for you know just ringing up uh, you know leaders in in African countries and things and not really dealing with um, victims of war more broadly and and more in a more just way how, how does this fit into that component
3: so I think um, aside from the very early and Sort of little known examples that Patty just mentioned with the UN War Crimes Commission cases that happened in the 1940s, those were all in national jurisdictions. They were guided by a UN set of advisors. As Patty mentioned, the middle part of the century, we've been much more focused on prosecuting these crimes um, in international tribunals, in the ad hoc tribunals set up by the United Nations. Now, I think what is so exciting about this film is that the f- looking very closely at how we bring these cases in national jurisdictions because this is this is beneficial for many reasons one you you think about the proximity to the affected communities and the fact that they have more of a chance to participate in cases that are held in their home jurisdictions so many more affected persons and their families and their villages can can be connected to what's happening with the perpetrators they may personally know or have have been somehow affected by um, the sexual violence is becoming a more explicit piece of some of these prosecutions because we've had advancements in the development of legal frameworks at the international and national level, um, and also because of, again, the, the awareness that this is a crime that should be treated. So I spent a lot of time on on the ground in national jurisdictions, and it really amazes me the job that the local prosecutors and investigators and judges and defense counsel are trying to do often in a resource-limited setting, um, in places where it's still quite taboo to talk about sexual crimes or what happened um, in really intimate and uh, potentially stigmatizing moments, And, and the fact that they're trying to bring international criminal law into a national jurisdiction often for the first time. And I think this is incredibly exciting, and we can think about it at a conceptual level, but I... I think films like the prosecutor and other efforts to document how this works on the ground are valuable because we see where the the gaps are between the the theory of international criminal justice and how it works when you're actually trying to you know where the rubber meets the road right for the for the local teams that are trying to do it um,
0: Are there examples you could give about uh where international justice was really beneficial and seemed to make an impact on the communities um that are that's that's worked out let me give
2: one example it's a very recent example but i think it's gone uh, over the proverbial head of uh, many people in the international community and that is that the former president of yugoslavia uh, radovan karadzic he was convicted of crimes against humanity and war crimes including crimes of sexual violence, in particularly those crimes that took place in the series of detention centers that were quite a, uh, a signal hot point of the conflict in the former Yugoslavia. His appeal judgment just came out within the past eight weeks. And on appeal, it was affirmed, the conviction for the sexual violence against children, against men and women in the detention centers, and sometimes the takeover of towns. Now, why this is important is it shows you that a head of state, someone who is geographically very far removed from any of the physical sexual violence, was still responsible for it through other means of modes of liability, a technical term which means your relationship to the crime. But in order to reach Caradage, there was a series of criminal cases over 100 at the Yugoslav tribunal that slowly built up the evidence to finally showing that Mr. Karadzic himself is responsible. And I think, just
3: to add on, if I may, Jerome, part of your question, too, is about the benefit to survivors. And this is honestly Mm -hmm. where I feel like we've dropped the ball a little bit or we haven't quite fulfilled um, our objectives. And we have cases where we've reached conviction so listening to Patty made me think also about the huge legal victory against the former president of Chad in the courts of Senegal for crimes that he and his security forces committed in Chad from 1982 to 1990. The the judgment was replete with convictions for sexual crimes, which is quite a legal victory, as I mentioned. But in truth, his victims are back in Chad and they have not received the reparations they're due. Um, and many of them have are now incredibly like maybe more stigmatized than they had been because they've been outed in the court process and spoken quite frankly about what happened mm-hmm. to them as individuals for the first time, and so I feel like this what you what you're raising is a very important question as to we have legal victories, but it, it's an open question in my mind as to how much those convictions um, benefit the community, the affected communities. I, I think we've I think we've failed to really connect um, in that way.
0: I'm talking with Kim Twee Selinger. She is director of the sexual violence program at the Human Rights Center at the Berkeley School of Law and Patricia Visor Sellers. She's a special advisor for gender office of the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. And both were consultants on the film, The Prosecutors. And the the film is premiering tonight at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. Um, Both these people will be there to to, to take part in the post-film discussion. Um, well, is restorative justice the kind of thing that um, kind of fills in that gap? Are there efforts at restorative justice that maybe take um, – are r- r- related to the legal framework but not um, right there that could could address the kind of things you're talking about,
3: Kim? Yeah, I think when we think about restorative justice, um, oftentimes we think of – immediately just the reparations that might be triggered because of a court case, but of course it's much larger than that. And I think it was really notable this past December, one of the awardees, the, the Nobel Peace Prize laureates was Dr. Denny Mukwege from uh, Eastern DRC, uh, Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And his, one of the things he is focused on is how to build up a system of reparations for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence that is independent of judicial mechanisms. So as we know, many survivors of conflict-related sexual violence, they need medical care. Right? They, they want to know if they have been infected with HIV. They want to know if they're pregnant. They may have physical injuries that need tending. They have psychological impacts, of course. They have social impacts. They may be abandoned by their partners. Um, they're worried about children that might be born of those rapes, for example, and whether those kids will have access to citizenship, depending on the, the identity of Of the father, right? Or um, access to education. There are all of these sort of social and psychological sequelae that arrive um, from these types of crimes that need to be addressed. And so far, our courts have perhaps provided some legal remedy, but not much of that redress. And so I think um, we have a great deal to do in terms of making victims whole. And sometimes civil society is the is left with the the burden of providing the psychosocial care and the shelter that survivors need. So but I think this is all important the their short term needs and then there are much longer term needs that survivors have, which um, we
2: need to attend. Right. Patricia, do you want to um, share some thoughts on this? Well, I completely agree with what him is saying. And I think what another point to recognize now and it goes back to the the first question that you asked we seem to be more aware of sexual violence. Well, now we have finally been able to enter into a conversation that's very complex and very deep. And it's not just about identifying what would have been a weapon of war. And it's not just about identifying one legal provision. It's about identifying not only the survivors, and some people did not survive, and some people who we don't even understand, such as those who might not have been physically touched but are psychologically now damaged, psychological sexual violence. And then communities who've had to survive beyond this type of tearing of their soul with sexual violence. So I'm pleased to the extent that the conversation can now deepen and possibly really get to the point of, of deterrence, reconciliation, restorative justice, uh, but restore, restoration of humanity... That seems to always be taken once someone is sexually violated.
0: I wanted to ask about uh, what's happened recently at the United Nations. And uh, there was a U.N. Uh, effort to uh, pass a resolution on, on sexual violence, and the United States watered it down with didn't like the references to reproductive health care services that were mentioned in the resolution, which has to do with victims you know, getting the help they need. Uh, How do you you respond to where the U.S. is at on this, Um, Patricia?
2: Well, I think the resolution that was proposed by Germany, and Germany was the president of the Security Council for this um, time period, wanted to incorporate reproductive health for sexual assault uh, victims. And one has to understand that reproductive health or health needs can be extremely broad. And I'll just give an example Uh, One of the examples is that uh, some people who are extremely um, mutilated via the raping process. And I think in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Dr. McQuaig, the majority of operations he does is to restore, to repair, actually, uteruses and vaginas and fistula. Mm -hmm. There might also be questions of persons who are pregnant, girls or females. And so to the extent, in my opinion that questions of reproductive health that are directly related to abortion, to the extent that that would come under health care and reproductive health, yes, it is present. But what is mainly present are other types of health needs. And I'd like to just also uh, clarify that many men who have been sexually violated need (laughs) reproductive health care. They often have uh, their genitalia that's been mutilated, they often have um, their anus has been perforated, and so to water this down under the notion that this was a means to promote um, abortion care, as opposed to the means to assure that states would look seriously at what types of medical injuries occur with sexual violence, I think was a, a, a lost opportunity. But um, maybe not lost because we're talking about it, Jim.
3: <laughs> uh, you know. I'm glad you raised that, Trim. I was sitting in the Security Council for that. What it was was this is the attempt to pass the ninth resolution related to the Women, Peace, and Security agenda at the United Nations Security Council. And and I was sitting there in the room knowing that the final version had taken out this provision of access to sexual and reproductive health rights um, largely because of the U.S. threat of veto, as you mentioned. And I felt incredibly... I felt incredibly ashamed that we were on one hand saying that we care about survivors of sexual violence and that this whole resolution, the impetus for it was to provide a resolution that would sort of emphasize survivor-centered response to conflict-related sexual violence. And yet we would make some strange... um, Sort of political decision that we had to take out language that is so obvious. This is often the first thing that survivors need. the 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 thought of actually prosecuting something is never the first instinct, right? It's really the immediate um, healthcare needs, and and it was pointless in a way. We have that language in prior resolutions Mm -hmm. from the Security Council, so it was it was in a way a very petty diplomatic threat and. So, I think that there is space. We can still advocate for access to those health care rights that are so essential, but it's just, it was just, it made the United States seem incredibly petty. And I felt very embarrassed um, as an American sitting in the Security Council room that morning, actually.
0: Kim Twee Selinger is the director of the sexual violence program at the Human Rights Center at the Berkeley School of Law. Patricia Visor Sellers is a special advisor for gender with the Office of the Prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. Both will be tonight at the Chicago premiere of the Prosecutors at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, along with uh, the filmmaker and WBEC Steve Bynum will host the discussion this evening at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you, British Chicago Council on Global Affairs fairs. Thanks very much for joining us and good to see you.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll talk about fasting and how easy it is or how hard it is. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. During the holy month of Ramadan, Muslims around the globe are fasting from dawn to sunset. Last week, Worldview's Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland headed over to the Muslim Education Center and Mosque in Morton Grove. While there, they broke bread with people at an interfaith iftar, and they got to ask attendees about their favorite foods during Ramadan, and here are some answers.
4: egg whites, avocado, and feta cheese.
5: And um, I feel like no matter how much water I drink during that span of time, I always wake up harsh.
1: Oh, My morning food, I, I, I usually eat uh, cereal or, you know, sometimes I eat eggs, uh, sometimes waffles. You know, I like the basic breakfast food.
4: Oftentimes, I just, I just like samosas, you know, or um, hummus. Uh,
6: you know, I'm a chicken person in, in the evening, but in the mornings, it, it's really uh, just smoothies. It's all about smoothies.
0: And you just heard from people at the Muslim Education Center and Mosque in Morton Grove talking about their favorite Ramadan foods. Now to talk some strategy on how people get through those long breaks between meals is Worldview's food and health reporter uh, Monica Eng. And she sits down with Meha Ahmed, the producer for WBEZ's Morning Shift, who is also observing Ramadan.
5: Thanks, Jerome. So we are in the holy month of Ramadan. And yes, I do have Meha with me. Ramadan Mubarak. Ramadan Mubarak, Monica. Meha, this is not your first rodeo. You have fasted before. And so I understand that you've talked to friends and you've also gathered a lot of wisdom yourself over the years about some of the uh, strategies to really stay hydrated and not grumpy Mm -hmm. and healthy through the month. Talk to me about them.
4: Sure. So yeah, I've talked to um, plenty of people. We sort of did a uh, crowdsourcing thing on Twitter and Facebook and talked to different friends on my WhatsApp groups, etc. And the number one concern for everyone is hydration, hydration, hydration. You know, like these are long fasts. They can be depending on when you wake up, you know, and depending on where you are. It could be anywhere between like 12 to 16 hours. And, you know, it's a long time not to go without water. So, uh, you know, a lot of people had different tips. So the main time that you want to really focus on your hydration is sahur, That's the pre-dawn meal. So we'll all get up, um, or at least most people do get up before sunrise to have like a glass of water and maybe eat something that's kind of filling just to make it through the rest of the, the What time day. are we talking around now? Uh, right now you're, you're looking at maybe like 4 a.m. What? Um, yeah. So you're probably going to get up around four, uh, because sunrise is about four twenty, four thirty, And, you know, as the month of Ramadan goes on, you know, that time tends to change, you know, give or take. But yeah, you're looking at like a quarter to four, 4 a.m. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. But you know, you set your alarm, you get up, you don't have to stay up for long. You can literally just get up and a lot of people have just a glass of water next to their bed and... You know, they'll kind of guzzle it and then go back to bed. So that way, at least you're not completely dehydrated during the day. All right. What
5: other recommendations have you heard?
4: Alat from Logan Square said, My go-to suhoor drink is blended watermelon with a pinch of mineral salt for a super hydrating drink. Add fresh aloe gel for extra gut healing benefits. Which I thought was actually pretty refreshing. Watermelon obviously has a very high water content, and so if you don't want to just keep like guzzling water, because sometimes after like the first glass, it can kind of feel like a bit much. You can eat just foods or fruits with high water content. That includes watermelon, like she said. Uh, We got another recommendation from Abir Najjar. She's a chef also from Chicago, and she like cucumbers, cucumbers, cucumbers at Suhoor. Does she recommend cucumbers? Yeah, I think she (laughs) loves cucumbers, (laughs) which is true. Like cucumbers can be somewhat filling instead of just water. and Super hydrating. Yeah, super hydrating. A lot of people also said, you know, you're kind of, you may be losing like some nutrients during the days, So like add electrolytes to your water. So don't just Mm. drink regular water. Like, you know, you can get electrolytes in a powder form or you can just get water that already has electrolytes in it. Um, The main concern is you want to keep your drinks low sugar and low calorie because the sugar can be somewhat dehydrating. So, you know, a lot of people go for Gatorade because they think that has electrolytes in it, but it can have a lot of sugar in it. Another alternative is G2, which is the lower calorie Gatorade drink, or Mm. you can just a lot of different waters that have just electrolytes in it. So definitely recommend that.
5: I hear that you got a recommendation from the Caribbean.
4: Yeah, it was really funny. You know, we got a lot of Muslims around Chicago, the Chicago area who gave recommendations, but we got one from Trinidad and Tobago. Siada on Twitter said coconut water. She's like coconut water is packed with electrolytes, a lot of nutrients there. Um, And after I saw her recommendation come in, you know, I, I actually looked it up and found out that coconut water can pack more potassium than Bananas. So, oh, there was one more water recommendation that I got from
5: our former colleague, former Curious City intern, Olivia Richardson, who came by and gave me her big tip for Ramadan drinking.
4: I've heard recommendations to do um, dates, you soak them in water, and then you drink the water. And it helps keep you hydrated because you're getting a lot of the potassium and a lot of the nutrients from dates in the water. So it helps keep you hydrated. It helps keeps your sugar and your energy levels kind of balanced throughout the day.
5: So that was Olivia Richardson, our former WBEZ intern, who was giving the date water recommendation.
4: Yeah, and dates are obviously a huge food that everybody eats in Ramadan. Um, Katsia from Morton Grove, she says she eats dates Kind of throughout Ramadan, she's like, those complex sugars, you know, st- just stay in your body longer. It can help you feel fuller. And, you know, it comes with a lot of uh, benefits. Fiber. Yeah, fiber, um, which you definitely want more of in Ramadan, um, just because you aren't eating as much. So you want to make sure to get all those nutrients where you can. Hind from Orland Park said... You know, for iftar, I try to stay away from anything fried, but I open my fast with dates, soup, and water.
5: I understand you heard from someone who gave you a general principle about uh, easing back into eating after you've been fasting a long
4: time. Yeah, the thing about Ramadan is... You know, for people who've never tried it before, it really feels like having Thanksgiving every day wow. because you've been cooking all day, you you wait all year for it, and the table is filled with a feast. You've got a turkey, you've got your stuffing, you've got your green beans, you know, your macaroni and cheese. And your mom's been saying, you've got to wait. You've got to wait until dinner. You just can't wait. Yeah. Some people, I've known people to fast before Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. Others just have like, you know, light foods. And then when Thanksgiving, you know, the dinner actually starts, you kind of just go ham on everything. You mm-hmm. just eat everything, like you know, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. You eat as much as you can. And, you know, half an hour later, you're lying down on the couch feeling terrible because you definitely went overboard. So imagine that happening almost every day in Ramadan, <laughs> you know, because, like, people have been hungry all day and they've been imagining what they're going to eat. And, of course, like, these are really special dinners. We They're very communal. Like, we invite a lot of neighbors and friends and family. So you cook a lot to make sure to feed everyone. And you put all the food out at once. Everybody kind of goes for it. And, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes later, immediately regrets it. But yet we continue to do that almost every day. Not speaking for everyone, but a lot of people are guilty of this. I am included. So Rana from Homer Glenn said, it's important that when you break a fast of this length, that you ease back into eating, you need eating smaller meals and food that will be easy on digestion. It's a process of waking the digestive organs back up after being on rest for 11 to 16 hours. So for Suhoor, she was saying that she drinks celery juice to keep her hydrated during the day. Celery juice, very hot right now. Yeah, very great. You can also get this at your local grocery store pretty often. Um, but said that like by the time she gets to iftar time, she likes to sort of pace out her foods. She might start with, you know, some dates and then she'll maybe after a few minutes go to like maybe a small bowl of soup, you know, maybe a few minutes after that, kind of like breathing between her meals and she's just sort of doing it course-like. And then her ultimate meal by then she isn't as hungry and she's only going to eat as much as she's hungry for. So she satisfied her initial like real hunger with the smaller foods and then is able to just Round it out with a smaller carb or starch or whatever. So I've been fasting almost my entire life. And that was something I never thought of, that you have to sort of ease into it and wake your digestive system back up, which I think is just a good principle to have throughout the month.
5: Well, Meha Ahmed, WBEZ Morning Shift producer and our fasting consultant, thank you so much for
4: talking to Worldview. Of course. Anytime, Monica. And Ramadan Mubarak. Ramadan Mubarak to you, too.
0: All right, Monica Eng is here with us in the studio, along with Steve Bynum, who has some thoughts about Eastern Orthodox fasting. Um, Monica, I didn't—I had no idea about all the the hydrating strategies.
5: Yeah, it got pretty deep there. It, it got really deep, especially <laughs> in months like this when, well, supposedly it's supposed to be warm <laughs> and in the middle of summertime, it can be a super dehydrating thing. So you're always thinking about how to restore those electrolytes and that hydration. But Steve Bynum, uh, you are uh, a, a fasting expert. Talk to me about the Eastern Orthodox fasting. about
6: expert. You know, the thing is, is focusing on the difference between abstaining and fasting. So you can abstain and the, the standard orthodox fast is that no meat, no dairy. It's basically a vegan fast, but that's really not what it's about. And so the fasting means is that you're in meditation and prayer and you're contemplating um, why you're in the world, what your purpose is in, is in the world, and then most importantly to to really reflect upon the fact that you are part of a human community and that you don't judge others. You know, There's a prayer during um, Lent that says, helped me to see my own faults and not to judge my brother. And so – How many
0: people in the Eastern Orthodox community fast during Lent uh, there? Go vegan like you.
6: Oh. A small percentage.
0: Mostly – yeah, I
6: know. You know me, Jerome. I go hardcore (laughs) and everything, you know. And so – but it's really – a a requirement. It's really about – co-suffering love. And that's what the whole message of Easter in in the Gospel is about. It's about what you sacrifice, what you give, emptying yourself of your passions and your selfishness and doing something for the sake of others and taking the focus off of yourself.
5: And that's what many Muslims told me. They said, you know, um, we're also supposed to be focusing on that, that there are millions of people across the world who don't have this luxury to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And this kind of makes us more mindful of that. So rather than saying, oh, I'm suffering, think about how lucky you are that after this, you can break the fast when the sun goes down.
6: There's a word in Greek that's, I'm going to butcher it, splagnizomai, which means to be moved as from the bowels. Because in antiquity, people believed that the essence of life was from the bowels, obviously, because that's where you eat. And so that's a, another, a, a different form of compassion to where you're, you're so moved that the essence of life itself uh, moves you to, for the sake of mercy and to help others.
0: Steve Bynum, uh, Worldview's senior producer. You can see him tonight at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs with the Prosecutor's Film. And thanks for sharing some thoughts about Eastern Orthodox fasting during Lent. And Monica Eng, thanks for um, thanks for all those suggestions about hydrating during Ramadan.
5: Thank you, Drew.
0: And Monica Eng is Worldview's uh, food and culture and health reporter, and we see her here on Mondays. Uh, Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll be talking a bit about uh, trauma in New Zealand after the mosque shootings. A couple of psychologists from this area went there to provide counseling and found some surprising things. I hope you can join us tomorrow on Worldview as we chat with them about what's happened in New Zealand. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.